Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. A brilliant young student, keen on sport, Ryan Pryor became inexplicably ill at the age of 17, so much so that he was almost bedbound. Supported by his parents, he eventually came to the diagnosis of an illness for which there is no known diagnostic test. Years later, he continues to make an extraordinary contribution to patient advocacy with a keen interest in the science behind the condition that one day will be better understood and diagnosed sooner. Here to tell his story is Ryan Pryor. Ryan, I'm delighted that you were able to spend the time with me today. I want to start our conversation, as I do with many of our guests, to before the story began. And in some ways, it began before October the 22nd, 2006. Where were you and what was going on in your life at that time? Thank you for having me. I was, in in October of 2006, I was a a junior in high school and I was focused on taking a lot of advanced placement classes and I was really interested in in history and literature. I was, I'm just, I'd just been elected to the student council president, to be a student council president at my high school and I was running on the cross country team and playing soccer and doing a lot of the things that you know, we encourage kids to do that if they're trying to get into a really good college. And that, I think my aspiration was to go to, to Princeton or to go to West Point and potentially to join the military after that. Um, but uh, I came home from school in, you know, one day in October of 2006, and it was so sick that I couldn't get out of bed for um, 16 hours uh, but, you know, as soon as I got home and went straight to sleep. And did that again and again and again for a couple of weeks. And eventually realized that I was going to probably have to um, drop out of high school altogether because I was not getting better. Um, so I, I began going on the, um, the hospital homebound program so that teachers would come to your come uh, send work home or come teach you at home. And I was on that for most of the rest of my junior year. We, we thought I had mono when when people have uh, when when teenagers have this type of viral fatigue. That, that's usually the, the most obvious cause of it, but and th- that should go to, go away in about a month or so, and um, you'll be exhausted for that time, but you'll probably get better. But for me, I didn't get better, and that was where this, ultimately, I got the diagnosis of, of chronic fatigue syndrome about six or seven months later. Thank you for telling us that first part of the story. So tell us what it was like for you at that time in relation to your healthcare advice. What was it like when you were going to see doctors in 2006? Yes, yeah, so, um, I originally was seeing several different primary care doctors who were part of the Air Force officers at the um, base that where my family was living in central Georgia. So then from there, when, when they couldn't figure it out, and they did a lot of the initial workups and a number of things came up normal, that's where I started getting uh, referrals out to uh, neurology, uh, infectious disease, rheumatology, endocrinology. So a handful of different specialists over the next period of time. And one of the main features of ME-CFS is that um, 
a lot of tests will come back normal, although the person is, is very sick and um, you're probably disabled. And, and so in my case, I wasn't really able to attend school or was, was definitely not uh, capable of playing any sports, which was a lot of my main passion up to that point was all, you know, soccer all the time. And so that there was a kind of a, a major sense of loss of self during that period because a lot of the ways I had previously defined myself uh, or at that point became totally inaccessible. A lot of the symptoms were you know, severe fatigue is, is one obvious one, but there's a lot of pain and sleep dysfunction, strange rashes, a long list of different things that were going wrong. And every once in a while, you would something would seem a little bit abnormal in the blood test, but never quite to the level where that would describe or define the, the full breadth of, of disease that I was facing. I spent so much of that time just in bed and resting as much as I possibly could. And there were no shortage of times when I was yeah, barely hold my head up. Life became different than other 17-year-olds I knew. What was it like for your family? They must have been frustrated, to say the least, because here was a young man who seemed to be really well, and then suddenly you'd become quite significantly disabled. What were their thoughts and feelings, particularly given that the doctors were telling them essentially that there wasn't anything wrong? My you know, parents, I, I think I benefited from having uh, two extraordinarily involved parents. My, my dad was a, a colonel in the Air Force. He was a pilot. And my mom was a nurse, both of whom were extraordinary advocates for me. They were very disturbed by the love. You know, they, they were used to seeing me as a very high-functioning person, very ambitious and very driven. So there, I don't think anybody had any doubt that I wanted to be better and that there um, clearly was something wrong. So we were just going to have to be on a mission to figure out what it was. And at the time, I think we were all just... You're living on the impulse or adrenaline and you know very mission oriented on the recovery years later it was easier to to speak with them about their their level of emotions that they felt and i mean they as parents they were incredibly distraught by the, the situation and they kind of, you know my dad wrote an essay where he you know really kind of described this whole process as uh, knee-bending agony and i think for my father is the one of the two worst points in his, of his life that uh, the first one being that his brother died in an accident in the lumber industry in Oregon um, in the late 1970s. And then for, fast forward to 2006, seeing his son disabled by a, um, a strange disease was probably the second most challenging point in his life up to that point. So on my mom's side, she would, she'd spent her majority of her career in the healthcare sector, so she was extremely adept at, at maneuvering among different specialists. And there was for her, there was nobody uh, in her life that was probably more important than me. So, using her skill set to maneuver through the the red tape of medical bureaucracy and holding doc, you know, assisting me and and holding doctors accountable um, and making sure I got to. Um, all the appointments. I think that really cut off several years worth of pinballing around the medical system that, you know, years later I've met 
a lot of MECFS patients and looked at a lot of the data on this disease and the, the time to diagnosis is usually measured three or four years um, is, is very commonplace, if not more. So us getting that diagnosis within, within six months was due in part to my significant research I was doing to try to figure out what was wrong, but both of my parents were able to push through all of the confusion. And um, yeah, so we, we, all, we survived it together. We hear this repeatedly from patients and patient advocates that family really stepped up when they needed to, but the challenge must have been really quite significant. So tell us about how the diagnosis was eventually made. CFS is usually considered a diagnosis of exclusion, which is to say that you have to rule out about two dozen other similar problems and so in, in this case, it was, you know, ruling out HIV and you know, ruling out all detectable infectious diseases and exactly how you detect a disease can be in, in both the art and the science, but at least as far as what, what was possible for um, the specialists that we were um, given access to. So in, in ruling out other potential causes that um, psychiatry, a lot of patients are going to get farmed out to psychiatry inappropriately. So dodging that minefield is, is, is one aspect of uh, making sure that you get, get access to the right biomedical provider when you do have a biomedical issue. And uh, so that this MECFS is, is most assuredly not caused by psychological factors on, uh, underlying that condition. It is a by most accounts, a, a post-infectious uh, disease, and whether or not the original infection is still at large, or if it was sort of a hit and run, or if that led to extended autoantibody activity, or you know, extended inflammation following the um, initial insult, that that it can vary. But whether or not my case was caused by Lyme disease or by Epstein-Barr, which causes mono, we're never going to be perfectly sure, but once we were able to navigate to that point of finding a doctor, a, a specialist who had recently attended a continuing medical, medical education seminar on, on CFS, he felt confident that that was, that was the right move. And um, once, once we made that call, then it, that, that, that didn't lead to immediate treatment, but at least it solved half the battle, which is just naming the problem. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. And while all of this was going on, clearly life had to go on. You were a young man. You were ambitious, you said, right from the get-go. How were you able to function at all, despite the pressures that were on you? My teachers giving me the benefit of the doubt. They they were used to to seeing a certain level of performance from me, and I was you know, getting A's in most of my classes. And they knew that I wanted to be as proficient as I as I could. So that that was part of it. That they, they lessened the workload. And then I had uh, three different teachers coming to my house, and so some of the time I 
I, I wasn't able to get out of bed, but I did have a, um, someone tutoring me, especially in the, um, I was not, not so good at math and science, math and physics. So um, I need a little bit of extra boost there from teachers who came, but then I was probably going to be fine being self-taught in um, history and literature and, and psychology. And um, yeah, we, we fought, you know, I'll say I fought my way, AKA like we all fought our way through that issue as a, as a family and as a extended community of my church and school and some of the uh, Boy Scout leaders that were part of our extended network. And a lot of family and friends were, were stepping up to give treatment recommendations and to try to be part of the, the solution when they could. You said that you eventually went into journalism. How did that happen? Did you, you, went, you went to college and how did you cope there? I started going to a doctor, a functional medicine doctor in February of 2008, when, which was in Atlanta. So that's about two hours north of where we were living in central Georgia. And I was getting um, IV uh, nutritional supplement treat, uh, treatments there and just doing a, a very significant deep dive in the blood work. Once you find a ME or fibromyalgia or Lyme disease specialist who can really attack the problem with all the tools and in, in the arsenal and figuring out how to do blood tests where you do detect abnormalities. And once I found a doctor who could, it's really a gift to be able to um, have a doctor who could, who could complete my sentences for me, especially when I was uh, brain fogging, couldn't, couldn't think. And she already knew what was wrong with me because it was the same thing that was wrong with hundreds of other patients. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing when, when it, you get the lab work back and there's, it was, she, she drew us you know, and some of those early tests was like 16 vials of blood and found, you know, t 20 pages of lab work comes back. And there's a lot of beautiful circles of, of all the things that were, were wrong that she had highlighted. And so we, we worked our way through addressing a lot of the underlying issues. That was the foundation of my medical treatment that really facilitated being able to go to college at the University of Georgia. And so I did my best to get into the honors program there. I studied the English and international affairs. So I still had that same interest in foreign policy and, and politics that I already, always had. But my, my interest was in being a writer. I think at, at part points in there, I wanted to be a novelist. I think that shifted a bit toward being a nonfiction author. And the way to eventually get to the point of writing a book would be to write articles and essays along the way and start building a, a name for yourself. So when I was got to be a senior in college, I started uh, interning for Newsweek and the Daily Beast in Washington, D.C., and then for USA Today, and that, that seeded the way for my career to unfold from there. And along the way, I'm sure you came across many other patients with myalgic encephalomyelitis and, and conditions that were not formally diagnosed. What did you discover about how healthcare was responding to them? I had no shortage of existential conversations with other patients who were getting uh, treatments there in that same clinic. Most of them told stories of having gone to the edge of what's possible for a human being to... Um, 
And it's not just the physical stability or abnormalities and stresses and illness that they're going through. This disease breaks up marriages. It can end careers. It can completely destroy your, your, your understanding of what truth actually is. There's an uncommon bond that gets formed, I think, with so many of the patients I would, would speak to there. And the number of people that I met online in, in patient communities who also relayed a lot of those same stories of, of, of feeling um, completely misunderstood doesn't even begin to describe it, but that the, as though the medical system had turned its back on them, that they're that almost as though like all of Western science is, is inadequate to the, to the problem that they, they're facing. And that causes, I think, a, a significant amount of despair it causes a lot of desperation. So people are oftentimes spending hundreds, um, well, in some cases, if they have it, hundreds of thousands of dollars on alternative treatments. However much money people have and however desperate people are, they can try a lot of crazy things. And some of those have some effect for some period of time. But it, it's a medical no man's land for a lot of the people who get thrown into this this post-viral syndrome, and they, they find that most doctors won't have heard uh, much of anything about it in medical school, and some of them even deny that the, this disease exists, but yet you find patients all over the place that um, have exactly what you have. If, if you know where to look online or know where, what clinics to go to and meet others with the same condition. So I think there's a real us against them mentality where um, patients have to bind together because we can be the only real support for each other sometimes. If in, in some of those cases, the family members were, were not supporting people in their, in their journeys and were actively downing them. So I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that I never had anybody um, or no one, no one significant in my life ever dared to, to say that it wasn't real. And I think that that's a, something that enables me to live with, with some level of confidence where if had I had people actively doubting the, that this illness was, was real, I think there would have been a bit more of a um, psychic hole in me. And then I meet a lot of patients who do feel that way, that they've been just so violated by the, the doubt that, the, that others might send their way. The Journal of Health Design fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. Historically, this has been true of many, many conditions that we now are able to diagnose with the test that was discovered years later. And you can think of almost any condition where people were treated with derision because they were regarded as malingering or hysterical until the test came along. And of course, in 2019, something did come along to rekindle our understanding of these conditions, and that was the pandemic. And you've spoken a little bit about the pandemic and the condition we now know as long COVID. Do you want to pivot to that discussion? I became a, a science writer for CNN, and I was 
writing a lot of stories about patient-driven innovation and health and science. And I had written some, some long features about MECFS too. So when I was talking with some sources, we were, you know, we're hearing this, this brewing of a strange uh, SARS-related virus in, in China. By late, late 2019, going into 2020, and if that virus was really, really going to become the pandemic that um, some of us feared even then, that was going to cause the same level of, of ME-CFS-like illness or you know, post-viral syndrome that we know that many other, you know, Epstein-Barr and a lot of other viruses have caused, in, including SARS-1 in China in the early 2000s, that about a quarter of the people who got SARS then in the 2001-2002 timeframe had chronic fatigue syndrome when they were followed up with five years later. And that, that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. That was a reputable study. And, and so a lot of us were who knew where to look in those early weeks and months of the pandemic, knew that there was something very bad was going to happen, not just in terms of like a mass casualty event, but a, a, I didn't have the words for it then, but I now know that we, we call long COVID a mass disabling event. And I called it, we call it MECFS, but long COVID became a term coined by an Italian geologist named Elisa Perigo that spring. So about half of the cases that we refer to as long COVID, uh, lingering symptoms uh, in weeks or months after the original COVID-19 infection, the, um, about half of those cases are almost perfect uh, replications of, of the MECFS symptom uh, pattern and they fit the, the, the exact diagnosis that's been used in our, our chronic illness community for several decades. So that's rekindled interest in the condition that we had almost forgotten about and you talk about it as the forgotten pandemic. What do you think is the future? Has this somehow led us to the biological markers of this disease? I don't know if we can say it's led, if it's led to the biological mark, but it, I think it's very true to say that it is leading to, it's conceivably the largest ever natural experiment that could ever be conducted to understand post-viral illness, that we know exactly what virus people got, pretty much exactly when they, when they got it, if not the the exact day, but certainly the, the exact month or the exact year. And watching uh, patients and, and thousands of uh, researchers around the world are engaging in some level of post-COVID science. We're using the opportunity to, to follow people for months or um, at this point now years into their long COVID or post-COVID experience. Many great studies are being published. A couple of the um, little standouts are Akiko Yamasaki from Yale and David Petrino from uh, Mount Sinai in uh, New York City. 
and they're, they're demonstrating with some of their cohort um, a year into the, the illness that a long list of abnormalities that could you know, low, low cortisol and, and um, T-cell exhaustion are, are two that have been published in the recent weeks by, by that team. And uh, low cortisol was something that has been part of my lab workup for, for 10, 10 plus years. And so another commonality of MECFS, a lot of chronic illness patients, and um, we're seeing more and more in, in long COVID patients is there, there, there's some mutations on the uh, MTHFR gene. And, and I could go on to uh, a, quite a bit of molecular biology, which may or may not be interesting to people, but the, um, there's just much larger samples uh, to draw from there in this because of the level of science going on for, for long COVID. And the general belief is that that can then rewrite the textbooks for how MECFS is seen and you know, how people are taught about that. And uh, ultimately, a lot of the same drugs that get used to treat long COVID in the next one to three years are going to be the exact same drugs that have, have worked, at least among engaged patients in the online communities and among the small uh, coterie of, of experts who, who treat ME, that those drugs have been around for a while. And but there's an opportunity to really scale up the knowledge and you know, showing results in the long COVID patients is likely to um, bear direct impact. And uh, th- this, this range of, of post-viral conditions of so fibromyalgia, MECFS, there's Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, there's mast cell activation syndrome, POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia. All of those illnesses will probably benefit and probably upwards of three quarters of, of long COVID patients experience these POTS symptoms or their skyrocketing heart rate, even when they're sitting down. So they're um, having this severe dysautonomia that their nervous system is just totally uh, dysregulated. All of which points to the fact that we really don't know as much about human functioning as we think we do. And if we stop learning, then we lose sight of the fact that at some point, someone's going to discover the truth behind what is going on. So in looking back at all of this, and if you were to go back to 2006, how do you feel doctors could approach a patient who presents with your symptoms or other symptoms that couldn't be explained in a way that would be helpful in the longer term? Believe the patient, listen to the patient, engage with the patient's story, use as much as possible an empathy-driven approach. And I know that that, in a lot of highly regulated healthcare systems, that might be easier said than done. But taking the patient's symptoms at, at face value and really engaging with this idea that uh, Sir William Osler, who was the, um, the father of, of medical education and you know, the, the scholar that so many doctors uh, love and admire, that listen to the patient and he will tell you what the disease is. And for MECFS, 
And a lot of complex or hard to treat illnesses, there's no substitute for a thorough physical exam and following the, the observable signs and symptoms. And there, um, the, another core component of this is to, to not overly rely on uh, diagnostic lab tests. I do think that the, eventually the, um, the right lab tests are going to be more widely available commercially, and that won't be as big of an issue. But um, at least in the primary care or, or some of the initial specialist settings, that internal medicine patient, patient-centered approach can get a lot of the initial pain and suffering out of the way. And one of the most important things is um, a doctor to actively uh, in- listen and actively engage and even spending a couple more minutes with any individual patient to make sure that they, their um, concerns are being fully listened to dramatically can not it won't solve the problem but it can dramatically improve some of the levels of satisfaction that people feel i was thinking in particular as you spoke in terms of your experience your parents were very much the support that you craved and needed at the time that you were diagnosed or at, at least even before the diagnosis was made and indeed it sounds like many of your doctors were equally supportive because they were prepared to walk with you no matter how dark the place until one day somebody said this is what the problem is for patients there's there's no substitute for bringing family members with you and partly because they 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 tell a more equally compelling story uh, to back you up and there's a lot of times when i was too sick or too exhausted to um, hold my head up on an exam table. So I actually actively needed someone to tell my story for me. So, and I think in, in those cases, it, uh, it becomes very clear to the doctor um, that um, even if they don't quite have the tool set to, to, to solve it, something, something clearly wrong. And just in my own patient story, I think I, I admired the, the level of intellect that so many of the specialists had. I was in tears a lot of the time when I left those those appointments because I, I let myself hope that they might actually know how to solve this problem, not just how to diagnose it, but how to like treat it. And it was eye-opening seeing these people who were, who were clearly the smartest people I'd ever interacted with in my life I was up to the age 17, but these were all med- you know, brilliant medical specialists in, in one area or another. And seeing them put put their head in their hands and say that they really wanted to help, but they just they they were at, at their end. And at a human level, it, there's a part of me that I almost feels sorry for them. But I was glad that they were putting the full force of, of their knowledge to bear on the on the problem. And so I and I would also just highlight that for for I I see a lot of patients have rage toward doctors and in that that rage may be deserved in a lot of cases but insofar as you can extend a hand to a doctor to make their job a little bit easier you're also of course helping them help you and um, figuring out how to do a, a, a strong co-equal partnership between the doctor and the patient is a key part of that and, and both both people have a, a role to play in you know 
getting, getting the best outcomes for, for sick people. Ryan Pryor, you're extraordinarily thoughtful, you're generous. You are a blessing not just to the patients who you interact with, but to medical science, because you are teaching us how to respond to people in distress, even when we don't know quite what it is that we're dealing with. Thank you for this conversation, and we wish you all the very best. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.